Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, Dave. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. How are you today? Can I say great? I am great today. I've been working on new adjectives, but today I'm great. Today you are great. I should I should say hello because you know it's hello is a song from 1984. Hello, is it me you're looking for? We've been talking about 1984. All year long, we start off our year 2021 talking about 1984. I invite people to go check out all our little list of songs that we discussed in 1984. It was good to see that this author, Michelangelo Matos, has a book that actually came out this year called Can't Slow Down. Now, 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year, and he kind of covers significant episodes that happened in the year 1984. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he, he nailed the significant episodes, and he really he gives a lot of good information. I learned some things I did not know about 1984. It's going to be good to talk to Michelangelo about radio and about MTV. And we would love it if you would check out our YouTube channel where we are adding clips pretty much every day of past episodes and from this particular episode with Michelangelo Matos. Some of what you don't hear in the podcast, you will see on YouTube. So check it out. So why don't we just jump right into it now, Holly? Let's do it. And welcome Michelangelo Matos. Hello. 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 You've got this book. It's called Can't Slow Down. How 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. Uh, I loved how you started off in the introduction with the introduction of like, I'm nine years old. I'm listening to the radio. You know, you're just starting out. And what did you discover at nine years old when listening to and what was that radio station? And do you, you know, what what were your first two radio stations? Yeah. It was two, because uh, I was going back and forth, just like twisting the dial to avoid commercials. Um, they were WLOL and KDWB. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't just become a music fan at nine. I was a music fan from really, really, really early. My uncle was a DJ. You know, I was obsessed with his records. I had a Fisher-Price record player when I was five. And, you know, I was, I was a huge music fan, always, since I can remember. And so that day was more that I realized after the fact that 84 was a peak year because, you know, that day sort of set it in stone. And I remember especially, I I wrote about this 
only tangentially in the intro, that I w- when I was 10, when in 85, I could feel, I could hear the d- utter drop-off in quality of, on the radio. Pop radio just like hit the toilet in 85 and stayed that way for a lot of the rest of the 80s, despite whatever, you know, nostalgia people have. What I remember vividly is how bad things got after that. And I remember how bad things were before it, too. You know, I was paying really close attention as a kid to I listened to Casey Kasem every week, like religiously. I was keeping I didn't like have a notebook with the with the charts in it, but I was always fascinated by them. I would write things out a lot. I remember once when I was a kid, I was at my uh, at a relative's house that I used to stay at on weekends. And I was uh, I decided I was going to make a list of every song ever. Yeah. <laughs> every single one. That's what you I do. Think when I got dying. to about 200 before I gave up. <laughs> but and that was well before 84. That was that was earlier. You know, that was a moment where I just realized this is really happening. All these songs are great. This is, I mean, you know, when you're nine, you're not thinking like a cultural theorist, but it was along those lines. Where'd you grow up? What city are you in? At, at uh, nine. I was in Richfield, which is a first ring suburb of Minneapolis. And that was a big part of it, too, because I was living in the Twin Cities. And, you know, 84 is, of course, Purple Rain Fever. And it's not just that. It's all sorts of fever. But that was the... The situation then was just knowing how good radio was compared to how it had been just a couple of years earlier when it was all air supply and it was all power ballads and adult contemporary and very, very, it was very white. It was very dull. And I had always been a fan of R&B and funk and disco. And my uncle that I mentioned, who was a DJ, he was a dance music, he was was a funk DJ. And I I would just pour over his records. So, you know, I was already sort of a lifer in that, in a sense, but I was, I sort of got out of music from 85 through maybe 87 because the radio just stunk. How aware were you of the music scene outside of Minneapolis? I wasn't aware of the music scene in Minneapolis. Again, I was a kid. I didn't know about local bands at all. I didn't know how any of that worked. I just knew the radio. And I knew MTV a little bit too. We didn't have cable then, but I would like, I'd go to Chuck E. Cheese on weekends and, and sit in, I didn't want to play the video games. I wanted to sit in the dark room and watch the videos. Yeah. So I wasn't really aware of anything beyond Prince and his whole thing. Um, and I knew what First Avenue was because of the movie, of course, but I didn't know very much at all. I didn't know anything about the replacements and Husker Du and any of that stuff. I punk to me as a kid, and I make a joke about this in the first chapter, to me, punks were like scary. Yeah. Punks were the people who killed each other on Quincy. Yeah. Oh, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> so going to a nine-year-old who's listening to Prince, were you, was it just unfiltered? Like, okay, I got, I got this album and you're listening to it. And despite Tipper Everybody Gore in, this, in Minneapolis, despite Tipper Gore saying you should not be listening, nine-year-old should not be listening to this. You still got your hands on it. I had a very unfiltered upbringing, which is bad in a lot of ways, honestly. But I also had a very strong fandom of him from the time I was a kid. My whole family was obsessed with him. Everybody in my, all of my mom's relatives and my mom and I were all just huge fans, huge, huge, huge fans. And we were all huge fans well before Purple Rain. The thing that I have, something I've talked about a lot, just I haven't written really about it at all, but something that I've always 
thought, and this is sort of corroborated by a lot of people, the most Minneapolis Prince album is Controversy. Controversy is the album where everybody in the Twin Cities got on board. I Want to Be Your Lover was a pop hit, but it didn't get played on pop radio in the Twin Cities until after it was a national hit. And this is when that was a much more commonplace thing. It wasn't all one network being programmed by a central computer. There were, you know, people were lamenting, and and again, I talk about this in the book, but people were lamenting the fact that they were using call-out research, using computers to program top 40 radio. People thought that was, that was, that sucked. It lacked the personal touch, et cetera. Uh, If only they'd known what it would become. But Dirty Mind was such a big critical hit and it was a big cult hit. And Controversy takes the ideas of Dirty Mind and expands them and makes them a little less, you know, confrontational and a little more user-friendly. And that was the album that everybody around me when I was six, seven years old was obsessed with. Sometimes it was just because of the poster of him in the shower with a pair of bikini briefs. It was some of it was Do Me Baby, the ultimate slow jam. You know, there were all kinds of reasons, but that's the one that I most strongly identify with as a Minneapolis album. And so I was already a huge fan. Everybody I knew, everybody in my family, a lot of my friends were fans. And then when Purple Rain hit, we were all like, well, yeah, duh. (laughs) In your first chapter, we talk about WPLJ, which was a AOR station. And and they discover, just like a nine-year-old, there's a lot of pop hits. And this this is where our radio station should go. And they were late doing it. They were at, they did it after, months after seven or eight months after most of the AORs in America were doing it because AOR had hit the wall. Let me go back a little bit because the the context will help. AOR had started in 71. It was basically invented by Lee Abrams, the consultant, who was, I think he was 17 at the time. And he had a very narrow definition of what rock radio should be. He, He was taking freeform FM, which was playing any damn thing in the world that the DJ wanted to play. And he narrowed it decisively. He made it very much about what the program director at WPLJ called white men with long hair playing guitars. Rock for a long time had been integrated music, to use Daryl Hall's term. He, you know, what Daryl Hall said was rock and roll wasn't white music and it wasn't black music. It was integrated music. And then it became unintegrated music. Jack Hamilton, who writes for Slate, has a great book called Just Around Midnight about how that shift occurred during the 60s, how in 1960, Chuck Berry was the archetypal rock and roller, a black man with a guitar. And by 1969, Jimi Hendrix was an atypical rock and roller because he was a black man with a guitar. And a lot of things changed around then, but radio basically took that to, as gospel. By 1979, by 1980, you didn't hear any black people on AOR radio except for Hendrix and Thin Lizzy, pretty much. And there were a lot of stations that were playing black rock, playing Funkadelic, playing you know Earth, Wind & Fire and the Isley Brothers, bands with guitars, bands that played bitchin' solos, you know, they just kept narrowing the focus. When punk comes along, there's a wholesale rejection of it. It doesn't fit the parameters. It doesn't sound airbrushed like Boston. It doesn't have the multi-tracked guitars and that sweet sonic center. It doesn't have that, like, pseudo-operatic feel. And 
it painted itself into a corner because by 1981, 82, most of the big bands that had dominated AOR had broken up, gone completely soft. I mean, most of those artists were not making good music or even making, you know, music that could fit the format as anything other than just like legacy. So, and I'm sorry to be windy about this, but, you know, it helps because by 1982, it's very apparent that the, you know, the hard rocking white guy thing has hit the wall and AOR is losing its audience because they have narrow casted it so definitively as just for young white men, young white working class men. They don't have any other reach. Radio is doing this all around. All kinds of formats are segregating themselves and narrowing their focus. But AOR had been so big for so long, and then suddenly the ratings are tanking. The stations are shutting down or changing. And Lee Abrams, who is consulting a bunch of these stations, basically you know, telling them what to play, he suddenly has a come to Jesus moment because between the narrowing of that format and the rise of MTV, where suddenly there's something like a national radio station for the first time. And, and guess what they're playing? They're playing British New Wave, the very music that the Abrams won't let his stations play. And they're taking it to the bank. It's burying AOR. The British New Wave bands, the synth pop bands, Duran Duran, Human League, that's all huge. And suddenly AOR, which had been like the epitome of hip for so long, is suddenly the most unhip thing there is. And Top 40 is hip. Top 40 resurges because of MTV and Michael Jackson. And when Beat It comes out, that's it. AOR has to play it. He made the track for AOR. Eddie Van Halen is soloing on the track. How does AOR not play it? So they have to. And then suddenly the ratings go up. People who are not just young, white, working class men are listening to this stuff. There's money to be made. So there is a real sense of we are on a dying horse here and we need to change in midstream. So they did for about two years. And that's the period that I cover in the book. I guess uh, MTV has a huge influence on this. I mean, I mean, as you say this, it's like, well, it's no coincidence that MTV came around in 81 and then started playing. Well, Sometimes segregated music, but still they were playing oh, incredibly segregated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> MTV. What's the figure? I think I had like twenty nine black videos out of seven hundred and fifty yeah. in its first two years, something yeah. like that. Yeah, no R and B really at all. Like it's the bus boys basically. Yeah. So MTV is decisive, and yeah, it, it changes everything. They were at first only playing the artists that that were making videos. This is who they were. They were getting videos. It wasn't. A, it wasn't you know, narrow casting. It was what was available to them. They were just putting it out there. Right. It's a kind of narrow casting. But the other thing to understand about MTV is that it modeled itself on an AOR station. It modeled itself on AOR, but yeah. it didn't have the stuff that AOR had. They didn't have videos for Zeppelin. You know, one video that they would put in that they put in microwave rotation really early on is the Springsteen uh, Rosalita from uh, Live in Arizona in 78, which is one of the just greatest, greatest things ever. (laughs) Just everything about it. I played that for somebody Mm -hmm. and somebody who I knew had no real idea what he was like. And the second it began, she was like, oh, my God, he's so hot. (laughs) I was like, yep. Like, just, just keep watching. You'll see how hot he is. Like, when because the, the girl comes up and just, all these women come up to kiss him. And at the end, this girl comes up and just, like, kisses him for two minutes. But that was something that they could play over and over and over again because there were no Springsteen videos, per se. Yeah. 
they didn't have videos for all of the artists they wanted to be playing. And it turned out that what people liked, what the kids watching this liked were the new wave videos. They had way more of those anyway, but it was also just more popular with kids. They were into it. You know, it was it was different. It wasn't old guy rock. We are talking with Michelangelo Matos about the year 1984. That was the year they can't slow down, as Lionel <laughs> Richie once said. But we slow down when it's break time. And that's where we have arrived at this moment. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Michelangelo Matos. In 1983, that was when the Brits took over again. You have a chapter, January 23rd, or what was what was the significance of that date, January 23rd, 84? That's the cover date of Newsweek. That's right. Okay. Right. right. Were they determined? Yeah, Newsweek puts uh, Boy George and Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics on the cover. Boy George of Culture Club, Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics. And of course, today, people don't even know the bands. They just know the artists. They know them as solo artists or as personalities. Yeah. I guess personality in Boy George's case, solo artist in Annie Lennox's case. But yeah, at the time they were, you know, they were the faces of MTV. When I was figuring out how to write this book, which took years, I mean, figuring it out took years, much less writing it. You know, I knew right away that was where I would take the second British invasion. So talking about your start to the book, how did you, I mean, obviously... 1984, I understand how you feel about 1984 being a turning point uh, or an ending point or turning point. What was the impetus for the book? I mean, had this been, how long did it take to coalesce? Uh, I had the idea first in 2009. I was flying from New York to Seattle where I lived at the time and it just hit me. I just, I'm sitting on the plane and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I should write a book about that year. A year, you know, I like I'm obsessed with that year in pop. What I always saw it as was a story. I always saw it as the story of an era. I mean, because it was sprawling and because I kind of resisted that for a long time. What people who sell books will tell you, people who edit books and sell them will tell you that you need one focus. You need (laughs) to have one central character in the narrative or something. And it's like, I've read so many music books like that that are unsatisfying to me because they do that, because they are so, oh, we're, we're going to tell the story through one person, which can be a great way to do it. But like, oftentimes it feels like you really want to tell something bigger and more sprawling and frankly, more interesting. And it took me a long time to sort of admit to myself that that's really what I wanted to do. That's what I had to do in order to write the book I wanted to write was to take the whole thing on. Not to focus on one thing and follow it through, but to write something more close to an aerial overview. Because I realize I'm not telling a story, I'm painting a canvas. This is a landscape. You know, it's a portrait of an era. It's intentionally broad and intentionally sweeping. A friend of mine gave me some advice really right after I started thinking about this. He's like, you know, the people reading this book will never have walked into a record store. And that made it incumbent (laughs) upon me if I'm going to explain how, I'm trying to explain how the music business worked at the time, the whole music business outside of classic. Mm -hmm. And once I started like looking at the events, the sort of dates that I peg things to, I realized everything's here. 
pretty much. Like I thought, oh, I'm not going to be writing about jazz. And then I see the Grammys. It's like, of course I'm going to write about jazz because that's where, you know, there's Herbie Hancock performing. There's Grant, there's Wynton Marcellus performing and causing controversy in both cases. And, you know, there's a lot of rich stuff there. And once I got into it, it was just like the research took over. You know, people have asked me a little bit like, oh, what's what was surprising to you about writing this? And the answer is that everything you read in the book practically was surprising because that's why it's in the book. It's in the book because because I was amazed by it because I didn't know it. I didn't want to write a book about stuff everybody knew and just fill it with gossip and quips. There's a real sense, too, that anybody who writes about 80s music should be funny all the time. That it's nothing but a joke and that everybody who writes about it should make just make jokes. And no, nobody would nobody would say that about a book about 60s music. That's true. But yeah, but I think a lot of it does have to do with MTV, but there were like these big personalities there, you know, you had your Cindy Loppers and Michael Jackson and Prince, and it all came together at Radio City Music Hall for the, the first annual MTV Awards. I mean, right. Yeah. And watching that, it, it's kind of like this explosion of like all this great music coming together at, at once. And I don't think it's ever That's happened right. again. That's right. I mean, I think it's happened again in more limited fashion in certain ways, but it hasn't happened like that again, for yeah. sure. And the, the thing about the first MTV, the Video Music Awards, is that I watched it and we didn't, again, didn't have MTV at the time. It was syndicated. They syndicated a yeah. two hour edit of the show. For regular TV, it, it appeared on regular TV within a week. So I watched it then and was sort of like, whoa, look at all this. Again, MTV was really decisive and really major, but it also wasn't everywhere. Less than half of America was even wired for cable at that point. The Video Music Awards had a much broader reach than the rest of MTV simply because they had syndicated it. And now I'm curious to know now what a syndicated version, what an edited down version would have looked like. You still got the seat. I think they would. I think they would probably have cut the part where Madonna's underwear. Shows. I was. I was about to say that. Like that was the controversial thing. I mean, you. Mm-hmm. I think Madonna said her career was over, or a lot of people thought her career was over once they he, she flashed uh, her underwear on that show. Yeah, and it was an accident, of course. Right, yeah, but it was unprecedented. Uh, even. I don't think anybody had really done that. No, no woman had done that, let's say. Because because the thing about early Madonna is that she gets brickbats, sexist brickbats for the very things. And other people pointed this out many times at the time, or not even many people. Dave Marsh pointed it out and almost nobody else did right away. Nothing she did was all that different from anything Mick Jagger had been doing for decades at that point. So true. There was a, a format that, that pretty much it broke in 84. This was this is hip hop. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, this was the year of breaking. And uh, I think uh, run the exploitation film. Right. Well, that's when you know it hits the big time <laughs> is when you get those those movies, those exploitation films like this is the, the, the whole country will embrace this. Or the, can you touch on uh, what was it? Uh, graffiti Rock, I think, is, is your chapter. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Graffiti Rock was, yeah, Graffiti Rock is the focus of the chapter. And I was fortunate to talk to Michael Holman, the host and producer and creator of the show. I found him through Facebook. So Graffiti Rock, you know, was a pilot. There was only one episode made. It was a half hour show. It was basically American Bandstand for rap. And it it was called rap then. Nobody referred to it as hip hop back then. 
is like you know Holman is seeing this whole thing blow up because he manages the New York City Breakers which is a breakdancing crew and he's shooting segments of these guys for like PM magazine and, and all these syndicated and local like magazine style shows that used to proliferate back then mostly syndicated and so he was seeing all of this you know he'd been a big part of that culture. He was somebody who was entrenched in it and knew it. And he was watching it blow up person by person, crowd by crowd, city by city. Nobody in corporate America was ready to believe that yet, even though it was obviously happening. Everybody but the radio knew it was happening. Everybody but the record business knew it was happening pretty much. He's like, we're going to get on this wave and we're going to sell this show. And he makes the show. And it was like, oh, this is perfect. This is a perfect frame because you have the old school, which is the treacherous three or the treacherous two because the third member had left. There are conflicting opinions on whether he left or was kicked out. Uh, L.A. Sunshine. They, they're the hosts of the show along with Holman. Run DMC is upending rap. They make they come along with their drum machines and they're yelling. They're completely non-disco sound. And nowadays, people refer to the early hip hop records as disco rap, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Nobody called it that then, but that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. They came along with their drum machines and their yelling, and they bulldozed. They they rendered irrelevant all hip hop before them, which is a rare thing to do. Um, a rare thing to do in any category, especially one that moves as fast as hip hop. And of course, within four years, they were has-beens, <laughs> just like the just like the groups that they had supplanted. But at that time, they were it. I remember hearing them in like I lived in an apartment complex, and I would hang out in the you know hang out around there, and like kids would have you know there'd be a playground, and like kids had boomboxes, and that's where I heard Run DMC. I was like, what the hell is this? You know, the, everybody did. Everybody who heard Run DMC for the first time in 1983, 84 was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. You had Shannon, the disco singer. You had the, you had the breakdancing crews. You had people scratching records. You had the whole culture on display in a half hour for middle America's consumption. And that seemed to me the perfect frame. Yeah, I can imagine what the, living in Minneapolis and hearing king of rock or what you know like, suburban minneapolis suburb, yeah like wow i mean that's great that it got to you like with all great books you have a great finale that, that it builds and builds and builds i mean we <laughs> we have you know band-aid goes into we are the world goes into live aid and then the and then as according to your book that's it decades are, or you know 80s are over right after a live aid <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say the 80s were over. The 80s, I mean, well, that's that's Marco Peroni from uh, Adam and the Ants who said that, that I quote in the intro. I mean, it, in a way, what happens after 84, after Live Aid is even more 80s in that sense. Well, you that's know? true, yeah. It's, 
It's what had come before amplified. You want big hair? We're going to give you bigger hair. You want airbrushed sounding drums? We're going to really make them sound airbrushed or gated rather. I wrote something after I was done with the book that ran in the Wire magazine about gated drums, which is where they take, they basically, you hit the drum and it has room echo and the gate cuts the echo off. So instead of a natural reverberation, it goes, you know, that sound. You think of like the early comeback Aerosmith songs, you know, like Love in an Elevator with that sound. And so the later 80s are an amplification and formularization of what's happening earlier in the decade. For me, 84 is such a peak because there's both the surging sense that pop music is fun, interesting, and worth being challenging with again. And there's also the sense of we got to make this accessible there. So it's like the perfect, uh, you know, perfect combination of experimentation and accessibility. Whereas later, all the experimentation goes out the window or goes into underground music. It goes into indie rock. It goes into hip hop. It goes into dance music. What led Bob Geldof to, to get all these people together and then, you know, and, he, and then develop, it just kind of escalated, it, you know, it was a, insane. Yeah, he's, I mean, and that's what it was. It was never a grand master plan. He wanted to do the Band-Aid single and be done. You know, he <laughs> wanted to go back to the Boomtown Rats because they had an album that, was, that he needed to promote. And instead he, what had happened is that he, like a lot of people in Britain had seen the BBC report on Ethiopia in October of that year. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the famine was going on and the images at that point, people had not seen images like that on television of people of children, literally starving. It, you know, it just, it was shocking to him. It was like, nobody had seen that sort of thing and much less thousands and thousands of kids like that. So it stirred him to action. He decided, you know what, I'm going to make, a record. And his idea at first, I think, was just to have like a handful of stars. It was just going to be like five or six people. When I, I forget who it was exactly, but I remember in the in that chapter about uh, Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas? There were people who arrived at the studio thinking there was just going to be three or four people. They weren't expecting everybody. Right. And he was going after as many people as he could, mostly, I think, because he just figured, I'm going to aim as widely as I can so that we can you know, even if we get like 10%, that's plenty, but he didn't get 10%. He got a lot more, Um, but all of them had seen the report too. Yeah. So that's all these people had seen that were horrified, genuinely horrified. People were not inured to that kind of suffering the way they are now. People now are so used to seeing that sort of thing. So used to seeing the devastation of famine and war and the horrible things that governments do to their own people that we've become blase about it. And that didn't exist then. So he, he puts this together with like Bob Geldof's ego or, or what was it that's like, okay, we did this. Everyone's into it. No, I'm go- I would say the was- opposite. I would okay. say I would really, Bob, I, yeah, I don't think ego really fit into this at all. I don't think there was any ego involved. I think it was the opposite. He was not doing this for his career. If he wanted to like tend to his career, he would have ignored it. He was already in the middle of a career slide that he was trying to reverse because he had put out a Boomtown Rats album. Like there's a footnote in the Live Aid chapter about he had a single called Dave, 
that the American record company made him change the lyrics to because it was a song of empathy for a gay friend. And they made him change the lyrics so that it wasn't about a gay person. And it flopped anyway. He was trying to do things to help his own career in terms of his own career, but they weren't taking. This took off, but it wasn't, you know, I'm positive he did not see this as a career move. It became very commonplace to say that. There was a lot of cynicism because, again, this is beyond the, beyond the scope of the book. By the late 80s, by the early 90s, you know, you think of like, we're sending our love down the well from The Simpsons is sort of the ultimate <laughs> parody of that whole era of charity rock because it became a whole thing. There were all these tours and all these charity records and all these fundraising records all of, in all genres and all styles. Do you know about Hearing Aid? I Vaguely. H-E-A-R hyphen N aid. Okay. It was the heavy metal. We are the world. That's right. I, it was, you're... it's, it's amazing. It's hilarious. Dozens of those, dozens, and they proliferated throughout the second half of the 80s and people got compassion, pop music kind of got in, or pop fans, pop intelligentsia, let's say, got a very bad case of compassion fatigue by 1990 or so, because there were so many of these things. So Live Aid and Band Aid and USA for Africa presaged a, or a lot of things. There were tons of those it became kind of a fad and people were just like, we're sick of this. It's all Bob Geldof's fault. Yeah. You mentioned Dave and you know, them, them removing a, a gay slur yeah. or what, you know, mentioning a reference, but 84 was also the year of gay awareness. Like, you know, Frankie goes to That's Hollywood, right. Bronski beat. Yes. I mean, yes. You know, absolutely. there was, there was a lot and, of that music. And, and the signal moment is boy, George essentially announcing that he's gay on the Grammy awards. <laughs> Maybe not announcing that he's gay, but, you know, doing it, with, saying it with a wink. It helps also to understand just how, you know, we were not a connected society digitally at that point. One thing that was a big deal about Live Aid is that it was the most advanced technological TV special to that point. It was near simultaneously live. There was maybe a, a second long delay, you know, which was unheard of at that point. Broadcasting live from London to Philadelphia and back, that was completely unprecedented. You know, it didn't exist to the point that we have now where everything is very instantaneous and small. At that point, 
everything was big and lumbering. The lack of connectedness meant that in Britain, Boy George was well known as queer. In America, he could fool people into thinking he wasn't. And the same for Boy George, in fact. So on the Grammy Awards, when, you know, Culture Club is accepting its Best New Artist Award, Boy George says to America. Thank you, America. You've got, you've got taste, style, and you know a good drag queen when you see one. <laughs> and his manager is said to have dropped his cigar. There was a firestorm as big as the one surrounding Madonna's underwear. Suddenly, Boy George's record, suddenly Culture Club records were getting banned at, at like Bible colleges. He had presented himself for so long as this cuddly, lovable, harmless creature, whereas in Britain, he was known as, you know, a nightlife sybarite. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it stopped Elton John's career for a bit. And uh, so, I, you know, America. Earlier on, yeah, in 76. Yeah. That's yeah, right. yeah. So. He admitted he was bisexual in a Rolling Stone interview. Yeah. Even. And yeah. Yeah, I, I had no idea George Michael was gay. I had no idea, you know, who, uh, Freddie Mercury. You know, these guys, they kept it under wraps for a long time. There's a great book by the British writer David Hepworth called Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars. And the Freddie Mercury chapter is heartbreaking. The end of the Freddie Mercury chapter is heartbreaking. The last line is, you know, after he died, his parents hadn't even known he was gay. That's how... People didn't pick up on those signals back then. Uh, we didn't, people did not, people were not code aware the way they are now. Yeah, I wasn't until you, then you look back at it and you watch Freddie Mercury in his short shorts. Like, why didn't I it's notice so this? It's, it is so obvious now. They're called Queen. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> there was that too. We were just young and unaware. I know. And but the it, times. But it, yeah. yeah made fun there was an oral history of the song ymca and spin magazine say in the mid early 2000s and there's all these sports people who are like the village people were gay yeah yeah ymca for god's sake i wanted to hang out with all the boys i mean what's what's wrong with that (laughs) it's wonderful just like my own curiosity so the way you laid out the book is very, very interesting. I love that, you know, I like the chapters, the locations, uh, the way you set it up. But I am sure that there were one, I don't know how you, you, you keyed in on each one, but you must have had to eliminate a whole host, right? I didn't eliminate any of the chapters. No, I eliminated a lot of writing. I wrote giants. I, yeah, I wrote sizable sections on lots of artists that I had just cut. Like there were lots of people that I wanted to cover, lots of things that I wanted to cover. And, you know, I write long and cut. The original draft of this book is two and a half times longer than the book. Um, it was true also of my previous book, The Underground is Massive. Um, you know, you're dealing with a big topic and you're dealing with a sprawling history with lots of characters and lots of personalities and lots of events. Something's got to go. And I, so I can tell you what I cut. I, there were loads of things. I wound up, I had a section on Janet Jackson eloping with James DeBarge. I had to cut all of the DeBarge stuff. I had to cut all the Janet stuff. It's important historically because it's what leads to control in her, in her big solo career. Yeah. But it just didn't fit. Um, I cut a big, the indie rock chapter was going to end on Sonic Youth, and I cut that. I cut a, I cut a big, I cut a section on the go-betweens. 
from the British invasion chapter that didn't, again, too small, didn't really fit, not enough. Uh, the chapter on Island Records, on which is a favorite chapter of mine as well, that the that chapter is keyed to the release of Bob Marley's Legend, yeah. the biggest selling compilation of all time, one of the biggest selling records of all time, probably the biggest selling record in, of 1984, bigger than Springsteen, bigger than Prince, bigger than Madonna. Mm-hmm. And I had, I'm a big African music fan. I'm a big fan, particularly of Congolese Sukus or Roomba, just some of my favorite music. And two of my favorite performers are two of the biggest performers of that music. And they were Franco and Taboule Rochero. And the two of them made a pair of albums together. And I had a big 2,500 word section on them and I had to cut it because it was just like, this isn't going to fit. This just isn't going to fit. You know, you have to include Fela Kuti. I had to include uh, King Sonny Ade. And I'm really glad I got all of that in there. Really glad. But I couldn't include Franco and Rochero. I will say, though, that that piece is going to appear in the next issue of uh, uh, Maggot Brain magazine, which Third Man Records publishes. Uh, It's edited by my friend Mike McGonigal. So I'm happy to say that that's going to make an appearance in public soon. I didn't talk about Luther Vandross. I didn't talk about a lot of non-crossover R&B. Crossover is sort of the key word for the book because this was the era of high crossover all over the place. That's why it was important to include a country chapter because Willie Nelson was the king of crossover or a king of crossover. Crossover was the word. Crossover was the move at the time. People were into the idea of going pop and crossing audiences and mixing things up in a way way that circumvented the increasing polarization, both of pop music and of America under Reagan. It behooved me to concentrate on those figures even though I had lots of stuff, lots of great stuff. Here's a thing that I had to leave out that I think you'll find interesting. I had to leave out a lot of stuff about how soundtracks worked. For example, the reason, one reason that soundtracks sold so well in the 80s is because of the rise of shopping malls. Theaters and stores were now 50 feet from one another. So it, much like you would buy a magazine in the aisle or a piece of candy in the, in the aisle, yeah. or, you know, in the, in the checkout aisle, because it's right there and it's an impulse purchase, people would leave the movie theater and go buy the soundtrack. There was also this amazing thing that I found in an issue of Variety where uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson are talking about how they have perfected the formula of soundtrack making. They're the pair behind Flashdance and... I don't think Footloose was theirs, but it, like they're doing all of these big blockbuster movies with huge soundtracks, Beverly Hills, Beverly Cop. Hills Cop. Yes. And they're talking in this piece in early 85 about t- the piece is keyed to the success of the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack and the Miami Vice soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, we figured out the formula. We start, instead of like putting the soundtrack together at the last minute, we now build the soundtrack into the making of the movie. And you're going to see it with our next movie, Top Gun. That can probably be a whole book topic in itself. I think we have a book topic for you now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little tired of talking about uh, soundtrack. <laughs> well, this this was great. It was a um, the book is a great document of the year 1984. So yeah, just just lead everything that leads into these certain episodes that happened in, in the year 1984 and what happened beyond it. It's uh, it was really it's a great thank document. So it's a, a great document piece. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate thank you. it. All right. Take care. All right. You too. The book is Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. The author is Michelangelo Matos, and we just talked with him. 
we went through a number of topics, a lot we didn't talk about, but it was kind of cool to kind of get his insight into how he picked his topics, and uh, I learned a lot. I did too. What he found significant in 1984, uh, a lot of things I didn't know so much about. I really enjoyed the reading more about the breakdancing and the, you know, the history of breakdancing and all the troops. 84 was a great year. In this book, he covered everything from a radio to movies and hip-hop and Springsteen and Michael Jackson and, of course, Lionel Richie. You know, you can't slow down when, you, when you're talking about Lionel Richie. Culminating into In the Live Aid. Perfect for our podcast. Let's wrap this up. We can't slow down, but we are going to stop. So until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.